Hi, this is Serena Sun, founder and director of Breaking Taboo. Welcome to our audio video podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Ryan Vedrine, who is an interventional psychiatrist, and he specializes in OCD and anxiety disorders. So uh, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And I'm so excited to chat with you today, Ryan, because uh, I remember during our phone call, we just went on and on about all sorts of different topics that, that you do. Yeah. Uh, one very interesting about Ryan that we're going to get into, um, Dr. Ryan, <laughs> is, right, um, right. Okay, is that uh, he does some very cutting-edge, modern, advanced interventional psychiatry treatments. <laughs> so um, uh, you do uh, brain stimulation, Right, and also uh, with ketamine, you also do um, uh, treatments with the drug ketamine, which uh, otherwise known as Special K. <laughs> so that's uh, what I know about that is that it's an animal tranquilizer, and um, also uh, kids sometimes use it recreationally. However, I do know that uh, in recent uh, advancements of psychiatry, it's being used in therapy treatments. So that is so fascinating, very, very fascinating. I would love to learn a little bit more about that, just jumping straight in. <laughs> There's so much to talk about, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we can go wherever you want. Um, so with the, a kind of newer, newer branch of psychiatry, interventional psychiatry, where we're trying to look at um, not just doing stuff all over the whole body, but trying to zero into specific brain targets and circuits um, and so one of the things we do is transcranial magnetic stimulation, where we use uh, magnets to specifically target specific circuits in the brain. Um, and, and that's approved for our depression as well as OCD. We treat with that as well. Um, what do you mean then, by magnets on the brain? So we, we use magnetic coils, and they're about the same strength as an MRI. And you, there's different versions. So there's one that comes in a helmet. There's one that sort of looks like a paddle that sits against the head. Um, but we, we focus them over the parts of the brain where the circuits lie that we know are involved in either depression or OCD. Um, and we, depending on how we stimulate, we can activate certain circuits or we can decrease the activity in certain circuits. Okay. So, um, is that somewhat like oh, when we see in pictures um, people having like the little the little patches in the wires that they put on their heads? That, or that's usually EEG, so that's usually um, kind of like think of a an EKG for the heart where you're just recording activity. Mm -hmm. um, so that's usually recording um, brain activity, which some people are looking at. Can you use that to then decide the best way to treat with brain stimulation? So that may be involved more regularly down the road. Um, okay, so what does this one look like? So it kind of looks like you're sitting in a dentist chair. Um, and again, the, there's a couple different machines. One of them has a coil that's built into a helmet. So you kind of wear a helmet and you, can, you don't see much, but you can feel the stimulation on your scalp. So we give mm -hmm. uh, magnetic pulses. And what it feels like is something kind of tapping on your head. Um, and there's another version that's just a kind of figure eight shaped coil that rests over the spot on the head. So um, it's kind of just like a metal arm that sits like this. How interesting. Wow. And with a metal arm, when the figure eight one, can clients feel it on their head as well? Yeah. So when the, the magnet goes off, um, when we release the magnetic field, it actually makes your scalp muscle contract really quickly, um, and which is not something you're used to feeling. And it feels like something's tapping really hard on the head. Um, so it's usually kind of weird or kind of uncomfortable, but not super painful. And, and the more you do it, um, you know, just like you don't feel your shirt on your skin at the end of the day, you, your scalp sort of desensitizes. So each, each time you get a treatment, it gets easier and easier and easier. Interesting. Interesting. And this is mainly used for OCD and anxiety, you said, right? So it's been um, actually FDA approved for depression first for like the last 10 years. So it's actually been around for a while. Um, is, is this the one? Uh, I think I've heard of it. Uh, but I mean, there's so many new uh, brainwave simulation yeah. treatments. now. I don't know if this is the one, but I have heard of a few different ones. One of them being they sit on a dentist chair. Um, and then it's kind of like they put they get put in a trance or like a hypnotic state, but there's something over their brains. And I, from what I've heard, it's actually quite relaxing and it works mm -hmm. very well for depression. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's the not same. Not sure what that is. You, um, there's no no trances or hypnotic states with with the TMS. Everyone's awake. In fact, we want you awake. Um, there's no anesthesia or anything like that, though. So it's it's outpatient. You kind of come into the office. You can drive to and from treatment without any problem. We have a lot of students that come on breaks between classes, that kind of thing. Oh um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's been around for like 10 years. And then OCD was recently approved to treat as well in the last couple of years since 2018. Um, okay. so that's kind of a newer indication for it. And what happens when the client's sitting there with this thing on their head? So historically, um, n nothing really. They sort of sit there and they get the treatment. And we are, I, I talk to clients about, it's sort of like going to the gym for your brain. So mm. It's, it's a treatment you have to do a lot. So you come in Monday through Friday. It's about 20 minutes, so it's pretty quick. Um, but you come in for four to six weeks of doing this. And so it doesn't work. You know, you're not going to notice a whole lot after one treatment or two treatments. But um, as you come in, we slowly kind of strengthen those pathways or strengthen those circuits. And people start to feel kind of subtle improvements week, week to week. So yeah. any one session is kind of, they just come in, they sit in the chair, our technician will place the coil and they get the treatment and they just kind of feel that tapping on the scalp um, throughout the treatment. And that's it? That's, that's it. They just, it. they then, just sit there. They don't have to no assignments. They don't have to do anything. So that's a good question. So from the beginning, we just, you know, if, if all they do is sit there and they get the treatment, it seems to help. Um, but the newest kind of wave of this and where a lot of the research is going is, can we help even more? Um, are there ways to enhance it? And so we, we know, for instance, with OCD treatment, um, if we activate some of the fears that the patient has, some of their obsessions, so if, if they are scared of contamination fears, for instance, if we actually have them imagine touching really dirty things, or we may actually have them touch something dirty in the room, activating those circuits may make the treatment work even better. And so for wow. our OCD patients, we're doing some little mini behavioral therapy exercises, exposure therapy exercises with the treatment. Um, with depression, you know, there's a lot of questions of, could you do some cognitive behavioral therapy at the same time or mindfulness exercises at the same time? So most of us think that actually that stuff probably makes a difference, you know, what state your brain is, is in or what it's doing at the time of treatment. Um, and I think that's kind of where a lot of the research is, is going right now. Oh, interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, I think that's just um, further proof that, that a lot of these symptoms that people experience, you know, obviously it stems from the brain. It's not necessarily what people think of as a mind over matter per se, mm -hmm. you know, all the time, uh, especially if you can literally like tune up, it sounds like you're literally tuning up the brain. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. one, one way you can think of it is, you know, when you don't have depression or anxiety and you get stuck in a, an unhelpful thought pattern, right, you might just snap out of it. And that's kind of what we tell each other to do. Mm -hmm. um, if you're stuck in depression or anxiety, the mechanism that your brain uses to snap out of it, that's the disorder. It's not working right. Um, mm -hmm. And so we think that these different networks or different circuits involved in that process, if we can kind of strengthen them or get them back in balance, um, if you will. We're kind of helping the person to be able to snap out of it again or kind of get themselves unstuck a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, because it's like a spiral. When someone starts to think right. about something, whether it's OCD, anxiety, or depression, sometimes what happens is once they start to think about it, it's like almost compulsive. They think about it again and they think mm -hmm. about it more and more. And then it's like they get stuck in this pattern of thinking about it and it just gets worse and worse, um, OCD or depression. So that's fascinating. So this is almost like a way to um, unhook them from the spiral type thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I tell patients we, you know, kind of that same gym model, um, we're strengthening the parts of the brain that resist, or if it's an OCD, resist doing the compulsions or help you to hear the, the obsessive or intrusive thought, but ignore it, or kind of notice it, but stay present and move on. That's the parts of the brain that we're trying to kind of strengthen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating because I know that a lot of mindfulness exercises focus on the same thing or yep. cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, like that's exactly what, what it focuses yeah. on is the thought patterns and, you know, how to switch the thought patterns and mindfulness as well, you know, or meditation or whatever. So, so this is just like an added tool, although I, <laughs> I almost feel like it's, 
it's an easier tool because you literally <laughs> don't have to do anything. Like, well, you know, so I, I think of, um, so you don't even have homework assignments unless you mix it with CBT. CBT is all about homework assignments and whatnot, you yeah, know, but, yeah. but yeah, this one, you just sit there on the chair and it does the yeah, work for and you. I don't, I don't truly believe, I mean, I think there's probably some patients, but I, I don't think of it as a complete alternative to those other things. Right. Um, right. <laughs> but it may sort of supercharge or enhance those other things. And I think to me, TMS by itself, it's not the end all be all, you know, it's not going to completely revolutionize everything. But I think the really cool place we're going is we know behavioral therapy things work. We know these circuits are involved. Can we pair them? Can we make both therapies more effective by combining them? And maybe something that would have taken you six weeks at the beginning. Now you can get better in three weeks or something like that. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. I think that's where we're going as a film. Absolutely. Um, the only thing that I'd be familiar with as far as uh, what I call fast tracking, uh, you know, is uh, playing around with our subconscious thoughts, mm. uh, which is, you know, falls into hypnotherapy or, um, you know, uh, right before you go to sleep or right when you wake up, like those, you know, the states of your brain that you're in are the most susceptible for you to do things such as affirmations or, you know, um, hypnotherapy work, meditational mm -hmm. work uh, to switch your thought patterns. So that's what I do. That's like, but again, like I said, it's work. It's like self-development work. It's like, okay, yeah. I got to do this. <laughs> and yeah, if I could supercharge it with this, maybe I could just be like a superhero that'd be yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah 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 i mean you're touching on too like that's that's kind of the premise behind some of the newer research into psychedelic medicine and, and into that ketamine that you brought up um, yeah there's there's what? using ketamine as like a oh go ahead sorry oh i was gonna ask so what is that called the ketamine is it it's just called ketamine therapy so or? Ketamine, ketamine is the drug Mm -hmm. um, which has been around forever. We use it in, in little kids. We use it as anesthetics. It's used in pain often. Um, oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that. I always just associated it with um, animal tranquilizers. Yeah, I mean, it is a street drug, so it is kind of a, a known party drug as well. Um, but that's been around, and then it's been, it's, there's various forms, so you can get it delivered by IV. You can inject it. Um, it can be com compounded into an oral pill or a lozenge, and then the newest version is called S-ketamine, which is a nasal spray. Um, and that's mm. what our practice is currently using. Um, and so- That is so interesting. Yeah, there's, there's the drug itself when it works for someone tends to work really rapidly. And that's, that's where it's gotten a lot of steam in psychiatry. So can you relieve depression symptoms or suicidal thoughts in a really rapid way? Um, and it does seem to help a lot of people. It doesn't last super long. So unfortunately, you know, on average, it's a couple of weeks of relief. Um, oh. Is that because the ketamine's in your system for a couple of weeks or why? We're not that? sure. That's still being worked out exactly how it works or exactly why, you know, for some people it's shorter or longer than others. But it's um, approved. It's a, it's... It got FDA approved for depression and for recently suicidal thoughts specifically. Mm -hmm. So... So what happens? And that's just giving someone the drug and, and they feel this kind of relief. The, the other way of using it is ketamine assisted therapy um, mm. and the idea is kind of what you're saying is it, it puts you into a different kind of consciousness or mental state that you may not be able to access on your own or, or very hard to get to um, because ketamine is a dissociative drug so it kind of can take you out of your head in a way or out of mm. your body in a way and so um, there's a lot of people using using ketamine to assist in therapy and, and looking at it as can you have a new perspective shift or a new way of thinking about your problem that will help you to do better right and so maybe those effects that you get out of that could be more long lasting than a couple of weeks so is this um how the the therapy goes basically someone goes in um to the therapist's office uh, or psychiatrist or whoever's uh, qualified to perform the ketamine treatment and um they spray their their nasal spray with with ketamine or um you know yeah, take so in there's some a nasal spray or Okay. Or, again, or pills, yeah. or I don't know how um, injections. You injections, know, so okay. with the injections and the the IV form of ketamine, you can get up to higher doses, which have a more dissociative effect, and so that mm. tends to be, um, I think, more preferable in, in people doing therapy. Um, okay, and then they lay down on the chair or something like, yeah, <laughs> like so stereotypical we, almost, yeah, therapy really, sessions. Well, so we have comfy kind of either couches or chairs. So we really believe in kind of the same model that's used in, in plant medicine and psychedelic medicine. Of the, I don't know if you know the term set and setting at all, um, but 
it's the idea that if you're working with the unconscious states or these kind of um, altered level of conscious states that the set and the setting are really, really important. So what are the kind of intentions of you taking this medication and oh, going okay, right. therapy? Mm-hmm. And what is the actual setting that, that you're in? So, mm-hmm. you know, with these medications, you, you can hear of bad trips or, or this or that or bad. Sounds like, sounds like people telling me about doing shrooms or something. It sounds exactly right. the same. Right. And most of those, if you look at like most of those bad experiences come because, you know, they were in a crowd of people at a music festival or the setting. Yeah. They were all alone. Something awful happened and they used this to get away with no kind of preparation. But in the studies and when. Or it was a bad shroom, right? Sorry. I don't know. I've actually never done shrooms. (laughs) Although, although I do have to say that I have once done special K a long mm-hmm. time ago uh, back in college I didn't really know what it was and it didn't do anything for me but make me feel like I was a little floaty you know yep, like yep. for for that's 10 10 minutes yeah for like 10 minutes and then it was gone and that's yeah. that that was it and I was like oh yeah. this I don't know why people do this it's really not fun <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's a huge area of research um right now and in in the studies where it's paired with a trained therapist Mm-hmm. and um, where the setting is really controlled, really warm, really supportive and safe, there are almost no bad experiences. They're oh, hard experiences. Great. Some people go through really hard stuff, but usually at the end of it, they say, I'm still glad that I did that, or I'm glad that I figured that out or had that Wow, experience. how interesting. So they uh, get somewhere comfy, they lay down or sit down on a comfy yeah. chair. There's a therapist there and the therapist kind of walks them through like what? Like uh, repressed memories or Not necessarily repressed feelings? memories, it's different person to person. Um, again, part of the idea is we don't know. Um, we kind of trust the unconscious state and the, the altered state a bit um, that the person will be able to kind of figure this out uh, mm. with themselves. Just having someone there to to support them, to keep them feeling safe, um, to help them along the way. So it's it's really different from person to person. The idea is just trying to help them get unstuck a little bit. Um, oh, interesting. So it may look very different with someone who's had lifelong depression versus someone with a lot of trauma or someone with OCD. Um, it tends to be a more, a less directive, a more supportive kind of let their mind take them where they need to go kind of thing. Okay. Okay. So that, that would probably be the difference of um, this, the major difference between, well, besides the fact that it's a drug, but uh, this and hypnotherapy, because a lot mm-hmm. of what you said really reminds me of hypnotherapy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, um, the therapist spends one time putting the patient into like a hypnotic state where they're, you know, uh, kind of like in between and they're in a trance mode or their subconscious is more malleable. And then the therapist mm-hmm. walks them through certain things such as repressed memories, which is why I ask is very common for that. I know the FBI also uses hypnotherapists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to to uncover um like if they need uh someone at the crime scene who can't remember certain things like what the car looked like or the license plate like it's been amazing i watch a lot of forensic uh <laughs> what's, what's that show um oh shoot that show with the forensic psychology where they where they uh uh find the murders with like they go through all the forensic science and oh, they, they find it yeah. anyway it's a very popular show can't think of the names <laughs> on the tip of my tongue right now but yeah it's amazing because i've seen episodes like true life stories where they found um the killer because you know uh, people in hypnotic states are able to recall small small details that you would never remember otherwise such mm-hmm. as like the number of the license plate that they saw for like a split second on a night that they barely remember, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So there's so much, I always say there's so much power in our subconscious, you know, there's so much untapped power that, that, yeah, it's just, we, we can tap in, in, into in certain ways like hypnotherapy and now it sounds like, uh, ketamine. So interesting. I don't know. I'm, um, with things like this. Okay. With, with drugs. And, and by the way, we are by no means telling anyone to self-medicate. Okay. Like we just got to put that right. out there. Yeah. Don't yeah. go off and start of doing this. Still not legal. Um, the, the places where they're done and then in trials, it's with trained people who, you know, prescribe this, uh, or it's part of a trial and, and there's training involved. So definitely not the same, just doing this on your own by yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Just got to put that out there. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, you know, I, I do know of, uh, for example, weed, medical marijuana is very mm -hmm. popular right now um, as well. And this kind of reminds me a little bit of that, of how, how people are using that for like all sorts of healing, healing ways. But, you know, my school of thought, I, and this is just my personal opinion, but I've always kind of um, been a little hesitant uh, to support things that make people rely or dependent on any type of substance, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, because it, like, just like you said with ketamine, you said that if they just do it, um, you know, if they just take it, the results may only last a couple weeks and then they're back to the same state as before. They still have the same problem. So it kind of doesn't, you know, it's not really a solution. It just kind of sounds like a, a crutch or, you know, just a temporary Maybe. solution. Yeah, it's different person to person. So, you know, for some people, it's enough to buy them time to get engaged in therapy maybe or that's um, true you know or it kind of unstuck unsticks them and they can kind of think of problems in a little bit different way and so for maybe those people the benefit the drug wears off but the benefits mm -hmm. have maybe still been there um, that's true that's a very good point yeah especially if someone's in a suicidal state like every right. second matters every minute matters so uh, fascinating the, the dependence piece i, I mean I, I would agree with you um we have I kind of have a way of talking with patients around, you know, whatever it is, because you could do this with anything, whether it's a substance, marijuana, you know, um, prescribed benzodiazepines or, or sex or food or whatever it is. Um, kind of a question often around marijuana, is this, are you using this right now to escape and not feel mm. something? Or are you using it to enhance maybe sometime with your friends or a partner and it's a fun time? but it's not every single day all the time, right? And, and that's kind mm. of a helpful guide that... Yeah, and I think that line gets blurred a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things where like, um, yeah, it's pretty easy to just use it all the time if it's mm -hmm. readily available, like, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't, let's not get so into that one because that's not your specialty, right? <laughs> let's get into, um, some of the other things that, that is your specialty, which is OCD and anxiety. I know that you have a lot of thoughts and experiences around that. So one, um, very interesting subject that we were chatting about over the phone before this, um, that I want to bring up is, uh, you you were telling me about um, certain types of OCD that you treat. Wow. Some of them very interesting and quite unique, and and a couple of them I've never heard about, such as you mentioned something called sexual OCD, yeah. right? Yeah. So what is sexual OCD? So I, I this is one of the reasons I like working with OCD is that it, it's it's always interesting. Um, there we have a few different types that I can mention, but really OCD can be about anything in the world. Um, I've heard pretty much every everything you can imagine at this Give point. us some um, examples, just some, some examples yeah, that well, most so people really, don't really think of. Common ones. Um, you know, the media always does the hand washing and the contamination fears, but there's, mm -hmm. that's probably not the most common thing I see. So um, OCD tends to go after things that are kind of taboo or embarrassing, or that's why sex I think comes up a lot for people, but sex, sexual orientation OCD is a really common one. So this is someone who's not trying to, you know, decipher their actual orientation. Um, in, in reality, they, they may think they are, but it's usually someone who's very secure, has lived their life as one, you know, particular sexual orientation and starts to have thoughts that maybe they were wrong and how can they be so sure? And they need to find out for sure. And they need to prove that, you know, it's one way or the other. Mom who was like in her thirties and married with kids and saw an attractive woman get on, get on a bus and started having thoughts of, why did I think she's attractive? Could I have been wrong? What kind of woman in her thirties doesn't know? And starts going back to her, you know, friendships as a 12 year old. And was that really a friendship or could it have been something more? And it's really sad um, when it's destroying their life that way, but you know, it, it's bizarre. Um, actually, I was just, I was actually just gonna say, I don't think it's that bizarre. To yeah. be, that's why I'm laughing is because I actually feel like it's so relatable because you don't know, especially in our day and age of the LGBTQ community is, is um, 
you know, is, is gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of respect and people are coming out all the time, left and right. And, you know, like the, you all, you're constantly hearing about this new celebrity who is, has, you know, come out with being bisexual or gay or all of the above, or, and now there's like pansexual and no. this sexual and that, I don't even know. There's so many well, that I can't not, even keep track like of. Said, it's not bizarre to have a thought, right? We all have like thoughts all the time about everything. The patients will tell you it's bizarre because I've never thought about this before, or it's bizarre because I'm pretty sure I'm straight, right? But what if uh, I'm not? What if I'm wrong? How will I tell that to my husband? Um, right, right. So I think it's it the is, fear aspect. So like when it becomes yeah. a compulsion, but what I'm saying, the relatability is that I feel like everyone at some point in their life has questioned their sexuality and even more so now. Even more so now, uh, I don't know, I just find it very common, especially for young kids to, um, it's even, it's like cool now to be gender fluid, you know? Mm. Like I just saw that, I saw, I saw it on like a Netflix show or something. And, and there's this one line where this teenage girl is like, like, oh, I want in on this. I'm gender fluid too, kind of maybe, sort of. <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny because I'm like, that actually has like uh, this generation, like what's happening, like right on the point. So um fascinating fascinating that that it can actually be an actual ocd disorder yeah and i think i think it's important this the amount of suffering that these people are going through is mm. immense right and so i you do you definitely see i think throughout society and pop culture and, and videos and stuff of things kind of being um thrown around more casually or colloquially or, or people kind of testing out things or wanting to be like hip you, you know and I think with these hip, people, hip is a good word. <laughs> with these people, like it's not that, right? It's 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 an actual fear. Pretty, yeah, I mean, so the international. Uh, this just reminds me, the International OCD Foundation just has run a big campaign around, you know, OCD is not an adjective. You know, mm -hmm. having trying to get people to stop saying things like, "Oh, I, I'm a little OCD," or you know, my my touch of OCD be, because mm -hmm. those are quirks, those are preferences. But for these people with actual OCD, it's it's debilitating often. Um, mm -hmm. I remember learning in uh, my very first psychology class back in high school, the class that got me into psychology, um, um, psych AP or uh, psych 101 AP or something. And um, him saying, I remember when I first learned about OCD, our professors, our, our teacher said that everyone has a bit of OCD. Like, I remember him saying that, like, everyone's got a bit of OCD, like, you know, if you, we'll if you're checking, <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. Well, I don't know, psychology research changes too, you know, the terms yeah, change, yeah. science changes. So it could have been something like back well, in the day. Well, there's a biological but... reason for sure why we want to maybe have rituals, right? So rituals have been around for a long time. There are well, biological reasons to be, so pregnant women about to give birth, actually, there's a spike in OCD diagnoses around that and you know, the kind of nesting thing or protecting mm -hmm. the young, right? So there's, there's, it's built into us to be able to do that. But then in these disorders, it sort of goes off the rails and kind of goes, gets hijacked. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's functional versus like, you know, functional impairing, I, I guess. Um, well, okay. So, so you talked about sexual orientation or OCD, you just touched upon, um, Pregnancy OCD, what is that? Yep, that's really common. Just um, so a lot of both, it, it can be fathers as well, but I've seen it more in pregnant mo uh, moms or moms who just gave birth. Um, just thoughts like, what if I throw my baby out the window or they're cutting up things for dinner and what if I stab my baby or what, you know, you can imagine. And then moms then are like, oh my God, what kind of mom thinks those kind of things? I must be awful. I must, you know. And it's this cycle of shame and then anxiety and fear and then shame again. And these people, you know, these are not people that do this stuff. It's, it's getting that thought. And then again, new, new parents, it's pretty common to have some dark thoughts. You know, you're not sleeping, it? it's, you're really stressed, it's hard work, people don't understand it. And so everyone probably you can relate have had a thought of like, oh, I could strangle them or I could do this or I could, you know, it doesn't mean anything. You don't think past it. It's more of an expression. Um, but with OCD, those, those thoughts can get stuck and kind of keep going. And then the more you think it or feel it, the more you start to question your own character and, and this thing. So it's these people come in really scared um, and feeling really bad. And then... But they don't... Me, sorry, they don't ever act on it, right? Like that's a different thing. Or do they? Or does it cause them sometimes to... I mean, we okay. rarely say never. But it, for the sake of, you know, working with OCD, yeah, 
basically these people don't ever do this stuff. They're the least likely in some ways because they're so terrified of doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And because it's really, it, so the other one that kind of goes along that we see all the time is um, intrusive thoughts and obsessions about pedophilia. So I've had uh, babysitters who come in, you know, a 22 year old girl who during bath time had the thought of like, what if I touched them in the wrong spot? Or what if that was inappropriate? Or maybe they were texting with their boyfriend at the same time and he said something kind of risque and she was feeling a little flirtatious or turned on and then said, oh my God, but I was washing the kid. And like, what if that means that I'm also attracted to, they don't make sense. They're not rational, but it kind of mm -hmm. gets stuck in their head. And you, again, people are terrified to talk about this. There. Is that, how common is that? How common is the pedophilia OCD? It's probably, it's, it's one of the most common ones. I hear wow. it all the time. Um, and people that don't work with OCD a lot don't necessarily know that. And so I've also had people come to me and say, you know, almost wait the full visit before they even bring it up because I, I've been told, my last provider told me that if I say this again, they're going to have to call Child Protective Services and that they're going to have to report me. And it's, which is just heartbreaking because they're scared to even seek help. And these, again, these are people that don't do this stuff. They're the least likely because this, the simple idea is so terrifying to them. Um, it's not right. where they're sitting there, you know, getting aroused and enjoying it. it it's, it's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of porn out there that is um, that that is like with young people. I'm not I'm not talking about child right. pornography, but I'm talking about like for like teenage whatever pornography or whatever. So, is that like the, that's not a sign of? I mean, I don't I don't know that we know why it happens. I I would say in general that almost all of the thoughts that that turn into obsessions are intrusive thoughts for patients. Um, they're normal thoughts that most of us might quickly have for a split second and probably never remember or, or mm. doesn't really jar us in any way, right? You, example people use all the time is like, you know, when someone says, imagine your parents having sex, we're like, ah, no, let's not do that. Move on. Right, right, right. right. Someone OCD, things like that get stuck and they can't get it out. And so... Um, Why does it get stuck? Um, there are some genetic commonalities in OCD. There's some hmm. brain circuit... Dis uh, dysfunction that we know for different patients, they may, their brain may make more obsessions and kind of hard to move on. The parts of the brain that I was talking about earlier where they resist that or they move on or they snap out of it for whatever reason, don't quite um, work like they should. Um, and so- Interesting. Yeah. Is that, is that, do you think that's more of like a, a brain functionality or a mindset type thing? The well, so it's, um, it's a brain problem. I mean, OCD is okay. probably one of the most well known of the disorders um, in terms of brain circuitry compared to some others. So, um, so if you don't, Oh, sorry. oh, no, I was going to say, so if you're not genetically predisposed, uh, then you probably can have these thoughts all day long and it wouldn't be an yeah. issue. And, you yeah. and not, not everyone not who is genetically disposed gets it. So we know mm -hmm. there's, you know, it may be high stress environments. It may be really, really rigid households or something may predispose you. It could be some traumatic experience that kind of colors you and tips you over. Mm -hmm. So you got to have probably a, a genetic predisposition. Um mm -hmm. And then I then kind of, I, I, sorry, I was going to say, I kind of feel like so many people have this genetic predisposition though, because OCD is so common. I'm just saying like OCD is so common or like even the more functionally, like even like little spurts of it. Like for example, um, uh, one of the things that I do that, that is kind of OCD is like, if I know I have to get up for an important meeting, I have to check my alarm clock like a thousand times, you know, and before yeah. I can fall asleep. Or like if I go away on vacation, I have to go totally. sometimes I have to go back back to my lock before I like walk to walk yeah. to the end of the hallway and then totally. like check my stoves but then I'm fine after I do yeah. that so but what we would say about that is is we would we would try to get you to not say that 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 OCD part of it because that <laughs> what you're doing there is and this is what everyone does right this is why they had a whole campaign about it um because it's so common is that's an adaptive response so your brain knows something important is coming up. It wants to prepare. It's thinking about what could go wrong. And it's leading to you doing some useful things, taking some preparation and this and that, right? OCD is, you know, 500 times what, what you just described in a way that's not adaptive and not helpful. And they end up missing diagnosed. the vacation. Yeah. The well, diagnosed OCD. Like, 
yeah, yeah. I'm just I mean, saying because you're you're OCD directly OCD unless it's really diagnosed. You're di just FYI. You're directly contradicting my last podcast with yeah, uh, OCD. Yeah. <laughs> so I just yeah. find it very interesting. And of course, you know, like like I like I said uh, earlier, like psychology is a very big field and uh, there's always new advancements and you know uh, i i don't know if you're uh, talking about functionally impairing versus not but or just like you know the the fact that we shouldn't be calling things ocd unless they are di diagnosed like the dsm um you know definition of ocd which i, I can I mean, understand I think, too I think functional impairment's a better way of thinking about the dsm is always changing and not right really exactly yeah. the old standard of things but yeah i mean the difference between I did a bunch of things to be proactive and make sure my vacation went great, right? Mm -hmm. Versus these people don't get to vacation because they can't stop checking the locks and they miss their flight, right? I mean, it's just right. like a vastly different normal worrying, normal preparation, normal healthy checking to be safe and, and proactive to disordered or, or functionally right. impairing like you said um, that's that's when they have to get therapy for it obviously yeah right. and the reason the reason people are talking about that so much that distinction is because what what they're finding is it's already really hard for patients to get that diagnosis and get right treatment and what happens is you know they might mention this to oh. a teacher or a friend and they imagine what they hear everyone say, right? Like, oh, well, I have OCD and so do you, and we all have a little bit of it. And then what happens is they never actually get routed to, to get help or it's, it's written off or it's imagined to not be that big of a deal. On the other side of the coin though, um, on the other hand, to play devil's advocate a little bit, um, I, I deal with this a lot with depression, right? With breaking taboo depression stuff um, with uh, people that come to us with depression diagnosed or not diagnosed. And, you know, depression is one of those also where it's like, you know, like if you have depression like does it have to be diagnosed does it have to be you know how functionally impairing like the scale of, of functionally impairing is extremely wide but is it okay to tell someone who is feeling depressed that no you're not actually depressed because you don't fit into the dsm you know definition of depressed uh, because yeah. i've been there like i when i was depressed um back in high school i never got treatment for it because my parents didn't believe in therapy you right. know i would beg them and and yeah. um, unfortunately i mean, I, never so I, I agree and disagree with you like i think we're saying a little bit of two separate things so I think the DSM has huge numbers of problems. Um, it's an area I'm actually really interested in, in, in the way that we classify or pathologize things, um, mm -hmm. many of which may be a, an adaptive response or a fairly normal thing versus something like schizophrenia and OCD are very clearly brain circuit problems. Um, mm -hmm. So I think just because you haven't gone into a doctor's office and then gave you a DSM diagnosis doesn't mean you don't have that. Right. But you probably don't have it if it's not causing dysfunction. Right. But that's that's the part I'm talking wrong, about. Right? Yeah. yeah. How much dysfunction? Is it yeah. dysfunctional enough for you to go get help? But then that's the part, again, that's also um, difficult to say because when do people get help? Just like you were saying, people might have OCD, but they're afraid to go get help for it. Or maybe yeah. they don't even know they have OCD because yeah. of the stigma or just because they don't know or lack of knowledge, whatever. Yeah. Same thing with what we deal with all the time with breaking taboo and depression, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like people might have depression, but they're not getting help for it. They might just think they're sad. You know, they might just yeah. think like, oh, I'll get over it, or why can't I get over it? Or, this is yeah. not a real problem or whatever. But on the other hand, there could also be like it works both ways. It could also be people who are sad, who are um, uh, trying to avoid the diagnosis of depression mm -hmm. and therefore they don't go in and the sadness becomes worse or whatever. Or, yeah. or there might be people thinking like, oh, I'm not sad enough to, you know, really be thinking I'm, I'm depressed, but they yeah. really should be getting help for it. So I don't know. I don't know about the uh, yeah, I don't know. That's an interesting thing that's happening with the OCD and, and how, how many, like what we should call OCD, because I'm just taking, I'm just flipping that and just saying, instead of OCD, let's replace it with the word depression. You know, how would I feel? How would I feel? How would, how would the, you know, how, how would people who are depressed feel about, about that? And I don't know. I don't have an answer, but yeah, it's interesting it's, to it's think interesting about. And it's controversial in the field. I would think of those two differently for a couple of reasons, but like one, one, um, there's a, a discussion happening within psychiatry around diagnosis, right? And so there's, there's one group that we really clearly, the, we can study it and you can see it and you can, you know, florid bipolar disorder, 
with, with fluorid mania, um, mm. schizophrenia, really severe OCD. There, there's really clearly like what's happening there is not supposed to happen. Um, that, mm -hmm. that there's, and we know we're able to see sort of brain circuit dysfunction, that kind of thing. Then we have the biggest class, which is like generalized anxiety, depression, right? Which those labels get thrown around all over the place for all kinds of things. Many of which may be actually adaptive, uh, your body kind of telling you something, right? So we, we know there's a lot of stuff, whether it's people in, you know, losing a loved one and bad relationships, a society that's very inequitable, um, being in a job you hate, um, being in a city that you're actually not that adapted to, to live in, right? Or, you know, not being part of nature. There's all kinds of things that um, the analogy I've heard that you may appreciate is like a broken bone. So mm -hmm. if your leg broke, right, our body releases all this stuff that makes us feel pain and swelling and it, it doesn't feel good and it's inconvenient. Right. We would never just give you pain meds and send you on your way without casting the, the bone or fixing right. it. So mm -hmm. there's this push to think about, you know, are we actually just sort of slapping on a diagnosis and trying to make people more comfortable with what they're feeling rather than thinking about these things as telling us something and, and trying to get at the core of it. So could we do right. more community intervention, connecting people, you know, face-to-face -face interaction? Um, Absolutely. No, I would definitely have to agree with that because yeah. a diagnosis also, so many people are misdiagnosed all the time um, because there's not, I mean, I always say psychology is a relatively new field. We know so much about psychology. We've gone so far in it, but still the field of studying the brain and psychiatry, you know, is neurology, whatever, is it's still pretty new. So so what happens sometimes is people end up with a diagnosis, but they don't really actually fit in that, like that may or may not be what they are, but it's a closest that the therapist can get, I guess, yeah. that they write on a form, you know, um, for insurance purposes. It's putting it for a system, exactly, yeah. It's right. not and really putting the person at, at the forefront of that. It's saying, this is what we yeah. have to do because the way the system got It's like a label, yeah, a label for insurance purposes. And I think that the thing with that is that's when you have to figure out, like, the insurance side of it and, and what's happening there with that system is like, why do they have to have a diagnosis in mm -hmm. order to be able to provide insurance? I mean, yeah. can't people just go to therapists because they're like not feeling right. very right. well or they just want to talk to someone? I and mean, I think most psychiatrists and, and therapists would 100% agree with us. And I, I don't know anyone that likes the way the system works. Ah. Ah, good to know. <laughs> Interesting. It sounds like there's a potential for some revolution there. <laughs> we hope, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think everyone kind of sees that. Um, it's it's what we have to work in, and at the end, we're still trying to help people, even though, I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm, I have to put this label, here's what I think is really we need to work on, or here's what I think is really, you know, mm. going wrong. Mm, got it got it that's good that you tell that you tell your clients that though it's, yeah. it's very because otherwise they could walk away with a false like something you know the yeah. thinking that there's something that they're not um and living their whole lives like that you know yeah. but yeah no it's good yeah there definitely are um uh, very intuitive psychiatrists and therapists out there i i actually want to ask you something sure. um uh, because we were talking about the you seeing uh, you did watch the last podcast I had with the OCD therapist, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember the part where she kind of diagnoses me, where we we're talking about? So basically, for for um, our audience out there, what happened with me was this is a full story. So I was seeing a therapist slash life coach, like basically it's just someone that I wanted to talk to on a weekly basis and dump a bunch of my, my shit on. Right. <laughs> um, but then during that time, I had a very close friend of mine, uh, jump off a building and kill himself. And it was very traumatic for me, extremely traumatic for me. And then out of nowhere, that's actually part of the reason why breaking taboo was started. Um, although I've lost multiple friends, but you know, he, he definitely um drove that uh but uh and then out of nowhere i started getting these thoughts of these weird thoughts like i couldn't go on the train i, I got afraid of heights i'm still afraid of heights to, to this day and i have no idea why i've always been not afraid of heights and proud of it you know i've always been the person like walking in high places or you know i went skydiving i i you know I, yeah i wasn't even scared when i when i went skydiving and then out of nowhere 
um, it was difficult for me to take the train and I had to bring someone with me to the subway station or just stand in the middle of the, you know, the station because I don't know. I just have these really weird, yeah. intrusive, like spontaneous thoughts of like, what if I jumped? What yeah. if I jumped? Because, and I, and I knew it was because my friend jumped and yeah. but just out of nowhere, it just, you know, um, that thought was put in my brain. I was traumatized. That thought was put in my brain. And then I started thinking that. So in the podcast anyway, yeah. um, she said that that was OCD. But going back to my therapist slash life coach at the time, when I told her about this and I told her that it was scaring me and these thoughts were scaring me, I was really scared. I, I like, I didn't know where it was coming from. And I was like, I don't want to, you know, like commit suicide, but yeah. like I, think of jumping and it's really weird and she actually said that i can no longer treat you and she thought that i was suicidal and she thought that i was depressed and suicidal and yeah, i always up. thought that there was something something else there and then i spoke to um that the ocd therapist in the last podcast episode and she actually said that it was ocd mm -hmm. <laughs> i the only way i would maybe say it different is that's definitely intrusive thoughts. And it's, it's definitely, it sounds like maybe at times some obsessional thinking, but certainly intrusive thoughts. Um, right. In terms of, you know, you could label that as OCD. If it's right after something like the death of a friend, you might label it as acute stress disorder. Oh. We, see, we see intrusive thoughts in really severe depression. Mm. And we see intrusive thoughts in PTSD, right? And so this is again where our labels really fail us, I think. Um, so well, it, it would be a red flag to certainly think about asking you a whole bunch of questions about other areas of your life. At the end of the day, the way we would probably help treat you would be probably very much in line with how we treat someone with, with OCD. Right. You know? The part that I felt was missing, though, is the compulsion. I was like, where's the compulsion? Yeah. What, what is so? So compulsions... Um, can be mental. So, you know, if every time you had a thought about jumping in front of a train, you started thinking of all the reasons why you would never actually do it, um, or you started um, touching yourself in a certain way to make the thoughts go away, even though it made no sense. Um, th that could sometimes be considered a compulsion, just a mental mm. ritual. Huh. But the other thing we'll see a lot is avoidance. And some people would call avoidance a compulsion or because you're avoiding, you never sort of get to the compulsion. So huh. if you stopped, you stopped going to the train or I guess maybe a compulsion would be bringing someone along with you for reassurance. That, that could be- Or standing in the middle. <laughs> yep, that would be avoidance <laughs> slash compulsion. So Okay, okay. Again, I think we'd be, we'd be careful about saying, oh yeah, you have OCD. But we'd say, yeah, this is a fear response. This is intrusive thoughts, you know, where you're- where your life coach, you know, missed it was exactly what you said. This is usually what we call ego dystonic. So I have the thought, even though it's not something I want to do. Um, and and we, right. I see this a lot with my OCD patients who have intrusive thoughts of self-harm or, and they get thrown in the hospital or people won't want to work with them or they get overly scared. And mm. again, they're, they're scared of what, if I do it, they don't want to do it. Or, you know, you have to figure that out, obviously. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. can't have both, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, during that episode too, what I did was I got hypnotherapy for it, which really helped. And, and uh, it was actually very fast and easy. I remember the, the process. It was, um, she had me basically, she put me in a trance state and then she just had me imagine this, uh, this like a safe place. What's my favorite place that's safe, put it in this box and then that, and then imagine the train tracks and put it in this box. And then we merged the boxes together like slowly and together. So my subconscious basically merged it together and then the dangerous place became the safe place. And, you know, and then, she, and then she had me rethink basically of the, uh, uh, the trains and yeah. make it like a safe place and to change the colors, you know, in your brain, you change the colors yeah. of it and everything. So it was very fascinating <laughs> actually yeah. for me yeah. to learn too. And like what's nice with what you're doing with, with the podcast like this is that really basic education for a lot for anxiety disorders in general and certainly OCD and some of these others um, can go such a long way so a lot of people like yourself or others will have an intrusive thought whether or not it's depression or PTSD or OCD but they have an intrusive thought mm -hmm. and they say oh shit what did that mean <laughs> what kind of person has that kind of thought you know what does that right. what does that mean right and just saying to a patient yeah intrusive thoughts are super common 
they don't always mean a disorder, but they're super common. They happen about anything. Yeah, about anything. Sex, religion, harm. But then um, I thought you said the OCD. Okay, okay, wait. So intrusive yeah. thoughts are common. It happens yeah. to everyone. Everyone has them. And uh, random yeah, yeah. intrusive thoughts. Like, for example, um, uh, like train tracks are dangerous or, or whatever. Yeah. Like intrusive thoughts. Like, don't go in front of a train or something like that. Yeah, right? Imagine but then, your best friend naked. Right. Oh, imagine. Right. Right. Uh, why did I think that? Like, right. Know. Imagining that you're about to run naked. Um, but then the OCD comes when you start to avoid it, or you feel feel compelled to do something about it. Or when, when does you, that become OCD? Comes when it becomes so distressing that it actually gets in the way of life. And that is oh, intentionally okay. broad because that could mean a whole bunch of things. Right. Because I was just thinking, I don't have to take the train. I can just take the Uber. It doesn't really get in the way of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you go about your life generally and you're pretty much doing anything and everything that you want to do and need to do, then you're probably just in the range of normal that, you know, had an intrusive thought or had an experience that was really intense or this or that. Mm -hmm. well, I really didn't like it, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, I really well, didn't like that thought. I really wanted to get rid of it. Intervened, right? So you, mm -hmm. you got it. You know, had you kept going and had you started to change behaviors more and more because of it, mm. that's how you grow an anxiety or grow an OCD or or whatnot. Yes. So the, well, the I've I've always believed there, in like facing your fears or just. Yeah. I was just like, what the heck is going yeah. on? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just helping them know that this is a normal phenomenon, and it sometimes it's irrational, sometimes it's scary, sometimes it's bizarre but it doesn't have to, it's not reality, right? So mm -hmm. um, the scary things make us change our behaviors, but I always tell patients, right? Like, what if you, you know, imagined winning the lottery tomorrow, just because you imagined it, you wouldn't go quit your job and, and buy a Ferrari, right? <laughs> the, the thought, the fantasy, the whatever it is in our head is, isn't reality, but we, we pay attention a lot more when it's negative or scary. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Our brains are fear-driven, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that suck that our brains naturally, like, tend to hold on to things that are negative or it, fear? <laughs> no, I mean, it was clearly adaptive for a long time, probably helped us survive in some ways, but, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we have to do you're like in a jungle. <laughs> right. But it's like we have to do like a hundred times the work for, you know, the good stuff. And then like it's like one bad thing, you know, yeah, one yeah. scary thing can just derail that, you know. So yeah. Yeah. it's a lot Our of work. Self-development. Survive, not so much maybe thrive. <laughs> right. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Our brains are meant to survive, not so much to thrive. I really I mean, like that's, that. Like that's the harder work for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, um, what are some of the more bizarre OCDs that you deal with? Yeah. Um, one of the, uh, maybe not as one of the most bizarre ones. Well, so there's, there's things that make absolutely no sense at all, right? So, um, if I don't move my body in a particular position, then something terrible or bad will happen to a family member. They might die, right? And so I've seen people who are essentially freeze in certain oh. certain things or they get stuck <laughs> and they have to go through a mental ritual of maybe they're retracing every step they took in their head or maybe they are praying in their head or, you know, so again, those things aren't connected in any way, right? But Has it ever happened in your, in your office where mm -hmm. someone has just frozen? Absolutely, yes. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so there's that. There's a lot, there's just right OCD where, you know, if if things aren't put in a certain way or if I don't touch certain things in a certain way, then something bad might happen. Um, mm. I've seen uh, what we've kind of called me, me too OCD. So I mentioned OCD kind of follows kind of what's what's either hot oh, or some kind right. of press or interesting these, these right. were like because the thought because you have to have the thought in order to have it be intrusive you have to see it somewhere or be exposed to it or, yeah, or is... i mean we don't know or it just makes it more likely that you something you get stuck on right so i've, okay. I've seen a couple men who are you know 10 years out of college and just so happened around this movement started having the thoughts of what if i did something then right you know mm -hmm. situations that lots of people are in in college but what if i didn't perfectly get consent or what if i am one of those people and right fat parties we could argue that, that that's a good conversation and a good thought for us to all examine right just in right. society uh -huh. but for these people it took over they, they couldn't function anymore they kept thinking about it hours and hours and hours they wanted to start calling girls that they had maybe made out with in college and double check for sure that they didn't do right which is like that gets kind of you know 
weird and intrusive. And is it? I mean, um, I don't know. Would they? Would the girls appreciate it or or not? I don't know. I, mean, I, don't know. I think a lot of people would probably find it really weird. A guy, you, have to talk to <laughs> hair, you know. Um, That's true. Some people were. Um, I had. I know. I've worked with someone who was going to about to go to HR to make uh-huh. sure that they reported this in case it happened. Which is like that could really blow. Up. <laughs> wait, wait. They were about to go to HR to make sure they reported something that didn't happen, or basically, or, or that they weren't sure that something could have happened, right? And that's the crux of this with with OCD. Regardless of what the content is, is the person is trying to get certainty. They need to be a hundred percent certain. And if there's a one percent chance that they're they're not sure. It, it takes over and, and it, it really can destroy them in certain ways. Um, is this a branch of OCD? These types of OCDs where it's like more like a thought, like a fear thought, not necessarily, it sounds less of a compulsion, mm-hmm. honestly, like more of just, you know. So the compulsions are all of the ways that they cope with that. So it's all, of, it's them sitting there for two hours trying to go over every time they made out with a girl to see if they did anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a guy who is so scared that he could do something without remembering or if he was at all out you know so if he didn't sleep well maybe he'll be foggy and do something he's not sure of he Mm -hmm. he logs everything he does in the entire day into a book literally every second right so that's again the difference of saying oh man did i do something and kind of being anxious versus this this person has to log every minute of his day in a book and if he Mm -hmm. loses track of it he's in terror because what mm. if during that minute he forgot to track, he accidentally touched someone in an elevator, right? Interesting. It, it, it goes far past rational. Um, so that brings me back to the question um, before of when you said that, oh, there's a difference between, like everybody has intrusive thoughts, but then OCD is genetic. The OCD part, not everyone, like, you know, only some people have OCD genetics, but a lot of this, I, I don't know. I mean, even in my own situation, you know, it's like, well, when when do you cross that and how, and this is kind of like what we were talking about earlier too, yeah. right? With the DSM is like, like, when do you cross that? Like, when does it become like, oh, now it's OCD yeah. or, you know, like, or I didn't stop it in time. So I guess now it's OCD, but does that mean that I was always genetically inclined to have OCD? You're right. We don't, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, it could be that you're on that spectrum, right? Um, and that it, it takes something fairly significant and severe to really tip you over. Um, I talk to people a lot that come in with things where I would say they're living pretty much the way they want, but they're a little uncomfortable. And we say, look, I don't know that I would say that you have OCD yet, but you're, beha- you know, maybe they're just starting to change some behaviors or be extra cautious with things. And I'd say, I don't, I don't think I'd say that you have just OCD yet. But mm-hmm. we know that there is a spectrum and we don't want you to tip over at some point into that. Mm-hmm. And if you keep doing this thing, if you keep avoiding this, you're going to grow into what could become OCD, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can start basically doing the, the approaches now where we say, let's not avoid or let's try to work on living with uncertainty around whatever it is mm-hmm. um, in general. And that might be the difference between fully developing OCD or and not right see that part sounds like mind over matter because that almost makes me feel like a lot of people with intrusive thoughts like if you just indulge in the thought you know Mm -hmm. if you indulge in that thought and you avoid it or try to do things about it then it becomes ocd if you do it for long enough but if you choose not to indulge in thought or choose to intervene or choose to go to hypnotherapy or psychiatrist or whatever or choose to meditate or whatever it is to get yourself out of it in time, then you just yeah. don't develop. Say, I guess, I'm not uh, saying like, in all uh, cases. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. The mind over matter thing, I guess I would want to, I think about more just because what it sometimes could, I guess, suggest is that. Right. Someone is sort of not trying hard enough. Or right. Something. We don't want to suggest that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, but that's, yeah. With anxiety. Right. So I do talk about with patients that, um, and there is, there is, there's a difference in severity. I have some, so some OCD patients, the OCD is so severe that they ultimately need brain surgery, right? So that's obviously a different group of people than the ones that don't need that, right? And so there, there's clearly how much you can do will depend on how severe, but we talk about choice. So this is kind of maybe what you're saying is you can feel uncomfortable and you can feel uncertain and you can be really scared and really anxious and your heart can be racing. And I can't control your thoughts I have no control over what thoughts pop into your head. We can 
help you have control over what behavior you choose, right? And mm -hmm. is that a behavior that's in line with things you value and the kind of life you want to live? Mm -hmm. Or is that a behavior that's based on fear and, and avoidance? And that's, that's kind of what you're getting at with mind over matter mm -hmm. is we, we have a choice here. And if we continually choose something in line with our values, however mm -hmm. uncomfortable it might be, over time, we can we can change those fear circuits a bit, or we can override them, or we can kind of get mm -hmm. out of the rut, right? Right, and therapy does that as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah helping with changing the thought pattern, and so and so does um coming from a life coach, uh, personal development perspective. That's all. That is like ninety percent of personal development or life coaching is like yeah. mindset shifts. You know, it's all yeah. focused on that. Like Tony Robbins, I think I saw this thing with Tony Robbins where he said that he doesn't even believe in depression. He said depression doesn't exist. And he, and I remember watching something where he had this person go up on stage and she was very depressed and she told him like how depressed she was and she was suicidal and she didn't want to live anymore. And he uh, like switched her mindset and supposedly cured her within like five minutes of coaching her on stage and it was a little bit of tough love and a little bit of mindset shift and well actually a lot of tough love but yeah. I mean of course I don't think it's going to happen for everyone and I have mixed feelings about that <laughs> that yeah. I'm still trying to figure out you know especially being yeah. in my field and uh, you know but I'm curious what do you think about that have you ever watched Tony Robbins or gone to any of these um I haven't but I mean I, I think you know, like what you're saying, I think severity makes a big difference. I think circumstance and privilege make a big difference, right? So it's easy to have a mind shift if you're pretty privileged and you have a lot of resources and you have time, right? But if you're a single working minority mom who is struggling to make ends meet, that, that mind shift's going to be a lot harder. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I think that's worth thinking about. But um, I, I mentioned the, the well, I, I practice from a framework called acceptance commitment therapy. It's one of the kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy that you've heard about. Oh, um, what is that? Act. So it's, it's the kind of, to boil it down really simply, the principles of what are your values and what are really important to you? Not your parents' values, not society's, but like what gives you the warm and fuzzies about life sort mm -hmm. of, right? What, and regardless of what you struggle with, how do we help you move in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. So you have behavioral choices you're going to make all day, throughout the day, every day. Are you moving towards your values or are you moving away? Um, and for some people, they come in and they have no idea what their values are. Mm -hmm. For other people, they come in and the fear is so much that they haven't even been thinking about them. All they can think about is not feeling fear. Mm -hmm. And so for, for someone like that, some education, some tough love, some mind shifts, some convincing them, like helping them actually just sit there and center on values mm -hmm. that might be a huge shift for them that totally gets them on the right track um you know for someone who can't touch a single thing in the environment because their ocd is so severe you're right. gonna need more than more than that right right <laughs> right no it sounds very much like um uh the way i approach personal development and life coaching which is yeah, a lot of what you just said, acceptance, commitment therapy, but acceptance and commitment is a lot of personal development as well, a lot of that. But yeah, and then of course, there's a certain point where like, you know, certain clients that I have even, I'm like, yeah. I would be happier if you got therapy and align with this or, you know, instead of this or do that first. So it really depends on the case by case basis. Yeah. But that's something important. I think something, something really grand that everyone should always keep in mind, which is acceptance and commitment. I love it. I, I actually, yeah, I, I actually want to do that therapy. <laughs> yeah, <it laughs> you know, so, so personal developmental. It's like, yeah, accept, accept. Um, what is it that people are accepting? Like everything about themselves, right? They're... It's, it's sort of being willing to accept certain feelings and certain maybe discomforts in the interest of committing to your values. I mean, that's the words actually it. put some people off and, and oh. means like, oh, I have to accept that this is going to be here forever, this and that. But really it just means we'll, we'll use the term willing a lot. What are you willing to feel and willing to do in the order of kind of having the life you want, right? Mm -hmm. For some people, you know, and, and if CBT therapists would argue, because when the ones that do it really good, but like a simple way is sometimes in CBT, you'll see people say, rate your anxiety, you know, is it a 10 or an eight or whatever? And we're going to do this thing and we're going to try to get your anxiety down to a four, right? Mm -hmm. Um, with ACT, you'd be more apt to say, okay, you know, what are your values? What behavior is towards or away from that? And regardless of where your anxiety is on that scale, are you willing to feel it so that we go do this? 
-hmm. And we don't track that as closely. Now we know that if you start doing your values, oftentimes those numbers come down, but it's mm -hmm. not the goal. You're, you're okay. You're willing to have it there if it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. so it's kind of, mm -hmm. it's, it's different semantics and kind of different focus and it also, therapists do both, but <laughs> right. Right. It also reminds me of a mixture of, uh, the whole feel the fear and do it anyway. I don't know if you've ever read that book, very popular book, but there's like a whole school of thought with like, yeah, you feel the fear and you do it anyway. And then living with your discomfort, which a lot of people who have come on to our, our podcast actually talk about what's helped them. And one of the major things that they keep mentioning is living with discomfort, like being comfortable with being, being being uncomfortable, which I find fascinating that and so many people have mentioned it. Uncertainty a lot. We'll use that term. Ah, okay. Living with uncertainty. Okay, taking healthy risks because mm. everything you do and certainly anything that's worth it has some level of uncertainty and some level of risk, right? Right, um, right. can't come up with anything really. Um, right. We're yeah. Not go take a nap in the street. That's a <laughs> that's an unhealthy risk, right? But walking across the street is probably a healthy risk worth taking at times. Right, right. And then, and then we have the whole rhetorical, like what is healthy and what if we could get so deep into that, maybe for another podcast, I'd love to, <laughs> love to discuss about uh, all these things. But I was, I was just going to add that it also reminds me a little bit of the Eastern philosophy of we have to accept our sufferings and our discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like we have to fully accept ourselves and accept our situations and what's going on. Um, you know, we have to do that first, like before anything. Yeah. So yeah, it's in a lot of different Eastern philosophies. Um, so yeah, it definitely it's reminds me of that. Resignation, right? I think that's what some people think of. I'm resigned to this. That's what some people, yeah. Some people even practice it that way, which that's, you're right. I don't agree with that either because I always say like whatever is empowering and there's disempowering ways to go about these you know philosophies definitely yeah. yeah if you if you resign to it and you're like oh this is just the way it is and this is as good as it's gonna get that's <laughs> you know is it really empowering is right. exactly like what you said you know will it help you get to your true values so yeah, i love yeah. it i just have one more question i know we're going yeah. we're yeah <laughs> extra time here but um i'm just so curious when you said some people ha with OCD have to get brain surgery. Like yeah. what part of the brain do you know? So um, there's a few different targets. So, you know, there's people put it at the cingulate gyrus. There's the subthalamic nucleus. There's, I'll spare you some of the, you know, but there, there's different But what does it do? Yeah. Like what does that specific? So there's two main types of it. Um, one is we can go in and just make a lesion. So we can kind of cut some of the fiber tracks. And for some people that will that will sort of release them from that, that cycle of being stuck. Mm. Um, the other thing that is being looked at more so now is stimulators where you can put in a, a sort of microchip, if you will, that sends, that stimulates and that stimulation can break that cycle. Um, and the benefits of the stimulator is we have all kinds of fancy controls that we can turn it on or turn it higher or change the shape of the field. We can do all this stuff that you just can't do if you just cut something. Um, and it's also reversible if it's a simulator. So you can turn it off or take it out or that kind of thing. And so for people with really, really severe symptoms where therapy and medications um, and maybe TMS or some of these other things haven't, haven't done the trick, mm -hmm. um, uh, the surgery can actually be a fairly successful option for, for quite a bit of those people. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I love it. Love it. Well, we are definitely out of time, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so it has been such a pleasure having you. Um, I've, yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Okay. Um, and I would love to get you um, actually on board for another episode sure. <laughs> at some yeah. point in the future. There's so much that we can talk about. Um, yeah, let's do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, have uh, Be safe there in Oakland, California. Thank you. Yeah, have a good one. <laughs> Thank you. I'll see everyone later. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.